Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. However, today we are here for Gabriel Roth. Mr. Roth has worked as a journalist and a web designer. He lives with his family in Brooklyn, but we are so happy to have him here in Los Angeles. Please welcome Gabriel Roth. So if I talk like this, is this being amplified electronically? Yes. Good. Uh, thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it. Um, couple, couple things before we start. The first thing is um, a couple of requests I have of you. Um, number one, it's really good of Skylight to have me here and have us all here and stay open and keep the space. Um, buy a book before you go. If you don't have a copy of The Unknowns, you should certainly buy that. But if you already have a copy of that, then, then find another book that you want and, and purchase that here at Skylight Books. Um, second request is, uh, I'm going to read a, a, a few passages and, and then afterwards um, I'm going to say maybe somebody has some questions. Um, and, and there's going to be a sort of lull where, <laughs> where, where nobody wants to, like maybe somebody has a question, but nobody wants to ask like the first question. Um, so I'm going to ask you guys, first of all, to try to think of some questions if, if you haven't thought of any already. Um, maybe during the reading you could just sort of try to come up with a question. And, and then after the reading, don't be shy. Just jump in with, just be that person. Everybody admires that person. Um, be, be that person. Um, and then the question thing will get rolling and then you'll see everybody will be like oh man that guy asked a question I'm gonna ask a question now it's gonna be great it doesn't even have to be questions about the book you could ask me my opinions about other topics or like sports trivia or whatever I would not know the answer to the sports trivia but but you could ask um, 
the the just now a little bit more business before we begin the 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 reading is going to be two separate sections of the book uh, for for a total of of a little bit under fifteen minutes um, because I feel like you can't asking people to listen to you read for more than fifteen minutes is not kind uh, so so that's what we're going to do any any questions so far. <laughs> So the book is narrated by Eric Muller. He's a computer programmer uh, in San Francisco. Uh, when we come in, he is attending a party at the home of his friend Cynthia. Cynthia decided she was a lesbian about six months ago. It wasn't without foreshadowing. She has pictures of Claire Danes up on her wall. And she's told me about jokey little crushes on women. And once she said she regretted sitting out the dorm room experiments of sophomore year. And now, even though she's turning 25 and it's embarrassingly late, she's coming out. A shorter haircut seems imminent, as does sex with a woman. A, a week ago, she made out with a 21-year-old named Ayelet. In the kitchen, I can identify two of eight people. Cynthia's roommate Gretchen, who is thin and pretty and not interested in me, is talking to a bald man in suspenders, and standing by the fridge with two women is Justin. Justin is a firefighter. He rides in the truck and everything. He went to college with Cynthia and then moved out here to go to grad school, and then right after the terrorist attacks last year when America was going through its little love affair with firefighters, he quit school and signed up with the SFFD, and now he walks with the quiet confidence that comes when you stare death in the face every day and save innocent lives and think of yourself without hesitation as a man. <laughs> Justin is also taller than I am. He greets me as I put the beer in the fridge, and then he introduces me to the women he's talking to, and I make the first in a series of mistakes. I shake hands with them from right to left, calibrating my grip to co-ed handshake strength. The one on the right is Lauren, nice curly blonde hair, a big bulbous nose, bad khaki pants that she probably wore to work. Sweet, shy, works in some kind of helping people job, a little insecure about her weight, a couple of flowy deadhead skirts in the back of her closet. And on the left is Maya, small body, small features, chestnut hair in a shaggy bob, neo-librarian glasses, a subtle smile at the corners of her eyes that says, I see through you entirely and find you benign but a bit ridiculous. <laughs> Girls spend years working on that look without reaching Maya's level. Anything I might say to such a woman would be a line and would hang, curdling in the air on leaving my mouth. So I open a conversation with Lauren. Uh, we're going to skip ahead a couple pages. <laughs> that conversation with Lauren culminates in Eric and Lauren going back to Lauren's apartment to take ecstasy. There's a right way to do these things. At the corner store, I purchased two large packs of sugar-free gum and two large bottles of Gatorade. We sit at her kitchen table, clink glasses of water, down these little aspirin-like pills. Lauren lives alone, so there's a cat, which is going to set off my allergies in about 45 minutes. On the walls are paintings by talentless friends, and black and white photos, presumably by Lauren herself, and Kodachrome snapshots of her parents in their youth. I conceive the idea of an exhibition of parental photos from the walls of girls' apartments, a show that would be situated somewhere between found art and ethnography. Maya does not appear in any of the pictures. 
I'm trying hard not to get hung up on Maya and how she's occurring without me right now. If the world would just freeze whenever I'm not around, I'd be less worried about missing something important. We make a kind of prelapsarian small talk. Do you do this kind of thing a lot, she asks me. What kind of thing are you referring to? I have my teasing face on. Oh, going home with strange girls and taking ecstasy, she says. Are you a strange girl then? It's almost too easy. <laughs> I'd be more anxious if we were about to have sex. It's certain that the next few hours, at least, will be very pleasant. I'm greedy for it already, smiling hard and getting an anticipatory buzz, even though it's only been five minutes and the drug has barely made it to my stomach lining. But I'm impatient, and I don't want to be sitting in this wooden chair anymore. The apartment is tiny. I leave the kitchen, and I'm in the bedroom. Sometimes you just have to accept these things. In the cab, I had worried about her CD collection, and a close examination bears out my fears. <laughs> it's frustrating, because I've got my iPod right here, and if I had a Y cable, I could hook it into her little bookshelf stereo. For the 50th time, I consider carrying a Y cable around with me, and for the 50th time, I realize how lame that would be, and I'm momentarily paralyzed, stretched across the gulf between my life's twin goals, experiencing uncompromised happiness and not being a loser. I sneeze. At some point, I have become aware of my heart beating and my blood pumping, and I feel a twinge of admiration for my body, which somehow keeps functioning through everything, although I so rarely stop to enjoy it. And I realize I'm really glad the evening is going this way. I can't think of a better outcome than making a new friend, a really nice girl, and getting to hang out with her and do ecstasy. You know what we should do, I tell her? We should take our shoes off. My shoes aren't bothering me at all, she says. And yet, once you take them off, you will be astonished at how much comfort is available simply by removing your shoes. I am sitting on the bed, hungrily removing my shoes. She's playing. What if I'm more comfortable with my shoes on? I suppose there is the remote possibility that you are more comfortable with your shoes on, I say, although I don't believe it for a second. But I seem to have acquired some kind of neurotic fixation on you experiencing the state of shoelessness right now. And so it wouldn't be inaccurate to say that your shoes are making me uncomfortable. <laughs> what a terrible situation, she says. I will propose a solution, I tell her. It requires that you do me a small favor. You remove your shoes. No, you don't even have to do the legwork. Legwork, huh? Anyway, I will remove your shoes for you. You will spend 30 seconds assessing the resultant sensation. If, at the end of that trial period, you wish to return to your previous shoe-clad state, I will gently replace the shoes, and my mind will rest easy in the knowledge that you are enjoying your personal optimum comfort situation as regards footwear. If, on the other hand, you decide that you prefer to go without shoes, I will do a little dance of vindication. <laughs> That's a great plan, she says. I get up off the bed and crouch at her feet. She's wearing some kind of black dress shoe. I cradle her foot by the ankle, fiddle with the buckle, slip the shoe off. I repeat the process with the other shoe. I place the shoes carefully next to the bed, side by side, then stand up. Oh, wow, she says. That's really comfortable. <laughs> Thanks. Um, uh, I'm going to do one more bit. Um, this, this 
that is from subsequently uh, in the book, but previously in the chronology of, of the character's experience. That is, this part is earlier than the previous part. Uh, this takes place on Eric's first day of high school. The desks in my new homeroom were laid out in a five by five grid, somewhere on which was located the socially optimal spot. All but three desks were still available. The choices of the first arrivals suggested starkly different intentions. Two girls in ornate sweaters sat front and center, while in the last row, a boy reclined his chair against the wall, his eyes shut. I considered joining him in the back row, but that would have drawn too much attention, so I opted for a seat in the classroom's exact center. Pleased with my choice, I settled in, savored the symmetry of rows and columns around me, admired the perfect diagonals that stretched from my seat to each corner of the classroom. At once, my satisfaction spoiled. The midpoint was the most noticeable, the most calculated. I snatched my bag and scrambled to a seat one row back and one column to the left. <laughs> we sat in silence for at least 10 minutes before others began to arrive, many in groups of three or four. I tried to believe that they were as anxious as I was, despite the casual way they picked seats, chatted, called out to one another. This kind of information is inherently distorted. We see others from the outside, all smooth surfaces and fixed appearances, and ourselves from the inside with our subjectivities and histories and bodily fluids. <laughs> the room's population self-organized into groups of people who'd gone to middle school together. The only person I recognized, April Melconian, seemed to have no idea who I was. The year before, she had allegedly let Jason Crawl feel her tits for one minute in exchange for writing her biology class nature diary. <laughs> On my right, two Asian boys were telling an Asian girl about going to Wet City and how fun it was. Wet City was a local water park. The seat to my left was still empty. And then, in walked Bill Fleeg. And before I knew his name, I knew that he was going to sit down next to me and determine the direction of my life for the whole of high school and perhaps beyond. <laughs> and then he did. He was almost freakishly tall for a 14-year-old, with an overbite so intense his jaw seemed to stop halfway to his upper lip. He peered around the classroom, saw the open seat, then made his way over. He had to kind of fold himself at the waist to fit into the chair, and then he didn't seem to, do, to know what to do with his arms. He wound up draping them over the desk. Trying to avoid eye contact, I looked down and futzed with my pencil case, which turned out to be my fatal mistake because it allowed him to see my calculator. Is that a Texas Instruments TI-80, he asked, and I had to acknowledge that it was. I had one of those, he said. Then I got this for my birthday. He handed me his calculator right there in front of everyone. I took it as though it were a fish, looked it over quickly, and passed it back to him. I'm Bill Fleeg, he said, like an adult. Do you have a computer? Yeah, I said, hoping no one besides Bill Fleeg would hear. The girl in front of me turned around, and I was afraid she was about to call me a loser. She turned out to have a big nose and cheeks that looked padded with cotton wool, but she was a girl. To my relief, she addressed Bill Fleeg. You shouldn't use a calculator, she said. You'll start to depend on it, and then you'll never be able to do arithmetic without one. Bill Fleeg had heard this argument before. <laughs> I carry it with me, so I won't need to do arithmetic without one, he said. I was horrified, but somehow unsurprised that this conversation was taking place near me, as if I were sending out invisible, contagious nerd rays. <laughs> what if you're on a plane and it crashes on a desert island, the girl asked. I'd have the calculator with me on a plane, wouldn't I, said Bill Flake. You might forget to pack it, said the girl, or the battery might run out. 
I'd carry extra batteries with me if I was going on a plane, said Bill Fleeg. He spoke in a breathless, hyper-articulated way, as if his lips and tongue were struggling to keep up with the words. It doesn't matter how many batteries you have, she said. They're going to run out eventually, and then you won't be able to do math. I couldn't stop myself. Why would he need to do math if he's stuck on a desert island, I said. It came out too loud, and the Asian guy to my right turned to see what was going on. I might need to calculate the angle for a lean-to, Bill Fleek said. I might need to do long division to figure out how to divide up the food among the people who are on the island with me. He might need to calculate where to put up a sundial, said the girl. I wouldn't need a sundial, said Bill Fleeg, extending his wrist to display a chunky digital watch. <laughs> you shouldn't wear a digital watch, the girl said. You'll forget how to tell time. <laughs> Mercifully, the teacher walked in. She was fat, and I hoped that meant she'd be jolly. It would be nice to have a jolly fat lady for a teacher. All right, you guys, she said, louder than the situation warranted, since we had quieted down as soon as she walked in. <laughs> she didn't seem jolly. She called Roll, and I got that slight nervous feeling you get the first time they call Roll, and you don't know who's before you in the alphabet, and you're afraid you're going to miss your name, or answer too emphatically, or you won't be on the list at all. But she read my name, and I answered fine, and I experienced that tiny sensation of pride and belonging that you get after they call Roll for the first time. <laughs> As we headed out for the first day assembly, I surveyed the kids in front of me and realized that none of them had ever seen me before. I felt a strange excitement building, the kind stowaways must feel as they watch the coastline recede. My identity was up for grabs. We were the last homeroom to arrive in the auditorium. The student body was catching up after summer vacation, saying, oh my god, and how's it going to kids next to them, behind them, several rows away. As I looked down at the crowd, I was staggered and overwhelmed by the endless varieties of girls. Girls who were going for cute, and girls who were going for sexy, and girls who were going for normal. Soccer players in shorts and sweatshirts, and future English majors in long Laura Ashley skirts. Girls with big breasts who were trying to hide them, and girls with big breasts who were trying to show them off. Christian girls in button-down sweaters, and nerd girls in overalls, and rocker girls in black t-shirts with elaborate heavy metal iconography. Groups of pretty girls, groups of almost pretty girls, ugly girls in ones and twos. It was an impossibly rich and complex zoology. I froze momentarily, and the people flooding in behind me pushed me forward, and I stumbled and nearly fell. Thanks a lot. So, any questions? Autobiographical. Entirely. Uh, no, no, not at all. No, um, I no, I'm uh, uh, no, I, I I don't have anything in common with that guy. Um, and it was interesting to to do a sort of flight of fantasy type of exercise with no real grounding in any of my own experience or or feelings. Um, any more questions? <laughs> uh, yes. The names, uh, Muller and Maya, um, they accurately portray the two characters. Intentional? Uh, kind of. I'm more like, come up, like, try and think of a name, and then you come up with a name, and you're like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And then later, you're like, oh, yeah, duh, it sounds pretty good, because there's really obvious symbolism. Um, so maybe unconsciously intentional? Because I was thinking really hard during the reading. Sure, thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> I'm sorry, I tried to be first, but 
No, 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 no. You, no. She didn't raise her hand. It's, 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 not a, it's not a competition. Okay, how long ago did you write this? Uh, well, I began it in 2004. Uh, when the world was young, and I finished a, a draft that's pretty close to this draft in 2008. Uh, and then there, there were some struggles to, to find an agent and get it published, uh, and then there were some revisions after I was working with an editor. Obviously, I, I'm not the only one here who likes this a lot. Um, it's, it's wonderfully, everything I've heard so far is wonderful. How does it sound to you, having written it a fair amount of time ago, to now be out reading it again, do you, does it drive you crazy? Do you, is it a mixed bag of, oh, that part's really good, I wish I could do that part over again? Um, thanks, that's a, that's a nice question. Um, uh, it, I haven't done enough of these things to get really sick of it yet. Um, and, and one of those two passages, that was the first time I've done it for people. Um, so it, I, I'm not sick of the experience of reading it. Certainly. Um, there's a few places where I'll like change a word or two in 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 the reading copy, yeah, which 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 is I got to be allowed. Um, uh, but but uh, approaching the thing for a reading is a little different from reading. Like when I was revising it and I had to read it over as a potential book, um, it's different to to pick it up for a reading because you're trying to find something that will convey well out loud, which is a different medium. Um, and so mostly, I feel like yeah, these these bits mostly work and like that. I mean, I I, I shouldn't say they mostly work. <laughs> they they seem to work for me. Uh, yes, in the green. I set out, oh sorry, I set out to write the greatest book that has ever been written by anyone. I set out to, um, I set out to write a first novel. Um, I think the first novel is a, is a sort of distinct form. There are some first novels that I really like a lot and they, they have a set of qualities. They have a particular sort of energy to them and, and um, a, a, a kind of conscious attempt to cover all the bases. Um, and I wanted to write something that fit into that category. Um, and I, you know, I, I like, it, whatever, it's not the greatest novel of all time that I hoped to write when I began writing it, but I, I feel like this does feel like a first novel to me. It's a coming-of-age story, and it, uh, it, it has a lot of that first novel flavor, um, and so I feel fine about that. And I set out to write something that would be funny and also kind of sad, um, and, and it, you know, it seems to, if it works for you, then it seems to do that too. Did your editor get you to get rid of some of those bases? No, no, not at all. Really? She was great. Um, when I say covering all the bases, maybe um, we're thinking of two different things. Because when I say covering all the bases, I mean you often see in first novels, you can tell that the author has tried to uh, find, has tried to work out a solid plot and strong characters and good description and a particular style that's fitting to the material. There's a kind of consciousness of the form that you don't necessarily need to have anymore once you're like deep into your writing career. Um, so no, my editor didn't say like, oh, let's get rid of some of the characters or anything like that. Um, but no, she was terrific and she only made the thing better and there were a few points where we disagreed, but if it was important to me, then I always won. So it was fine. Uh, yes, in, in the, near the plant. But um, two things. 
<laughs> Have you met my protagonist? <laughs> you guys might get along. Thank you. Uh, I am writing something. I'm at the very beginning stages of another novel. I have a contract in, not here, but in the UK with um, Picador uh, to do another book. So I, I owe them that or else I have to give them some money back. So uh, I, I have started something else. But it's very, very early and, and I really hope it works out. <laughs> yes? When did your interest in writing sort of overtake you? At the age of five, I found myself consumed <laughs> by a passion. Uh, no, I, I was working, I got out of college and I was working as a journalist in San Francisco. Um, and so I was doing some writing and some editing, but mostly um, I was working very quickly and it's not really an environment, it's not a literary environment. Um, and I wasn't particularly great at it. Um, I, I was good at the writing and editing quite quickly, but I wasn't a very good journalist. Um, and, and really it seemed at the time like, well, I should try to find something that I'm better at than this. Um, and, and it seemed like writing fiction might be that thing, and then for a while it seemed like it might not be that thing. But then I, I think it did turn out that I'm better at that than at being a journalist. So, uh, <laughs> uh, mission accomplished. What are some of the first novels that you, Greatest of all time is uh, The Swimming Pool Library by the British novelist Alan Hollinghurst. I don't know how many people know that book. Maybe you guys have a copy here, and if so, so someone should buy it before they leave. Um, the Swimming Pool Library. It's a novel of gay life in London in the 1980s, uh, and it's just impeccable. Everything about it is, it's like if you made a checklist of all the qualities that a contemporary realist novel should have, and then you decide to excel in every one of those qualities, um, then you would come up with something like The Swimming Pool Library. Um, um, another one is, uh, what's better known over here, is The Mysteries of Pittsburgh by Michael Chabon, which um, I think it was Bill Watterson's brother, Sean, who first gave it to me. Um, and it's just terrific, and, and it has, I mean, Chabon obviously is one of the greats, but um, it has a kind of vigor and energy and drive and force to it that yeah, when he was 21 years old, and he, had, he, still had, he already had all his skill, but at the time he had the energy of a 21-year-old, and it's, it's pretty wild. Cool. That was a great round of questions. I feel really good about that. Thank you, guys. Thank you all for coming up. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.